Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. This is Russ, K5TUX, the host. And this is- oh, no, no, no. Don't jump in yet. Don't be like that. <laughs> well, there was a pause. I apologize. Carry on. No, I'm, I pause all the time. So anyway, this is Russ, K5TUX, co-host of Linux in the Hamshack, and you've tuned in to episode number 104. And with me tonight, as he will be probably for the foreseeable future, our other co-host up there in the cold, apparently in rainy climes of somewhere outside Montreal, Quebec. It's Pete, V2XPL. How are you tonight, Pete? Greetings, everyone. Thanks a lot. Uh, we're doing good here in Montreal. A uh, little bit wet, but uh, we're managing uh, to survive nonetheless. A little colder than you. Of course, uh, but uh, seasonal up here. We've been uh, about seven, eight degrees, uh, close to ten Celsius, which is around fifty Fahrenheit. So, spring is creeping in, and we're more than happy to welcome it. Unfortunately, around here, we haven't sort of been able to find a happy medium for the longest time through March and into the early April. We've been running ten to twenty degrees Fahrenheit below our averages for the year, and today we decided to go about twenty degrees over. So uh, I think we, like I said, uh, as we were talking earlier, I believe we hit the low 80 mark today. I like the warmer temperatures. I'm kind of a spring, summer, fall kind of person as opposed to a winter person. But uh, maybe we could sort of work for a nice level playing field temperature-wise. A little early for the 80s for me. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. Like I was saying before, I, I don't even like 80s in the summer, and uh, it's just April. So mind you, it all depends on what you're used to, and I have a lot of friends in Florida. I don't know how they do it in the summer, but they certainly wouldn't be able to survive up here in the winter either. So, uh, you know, you get used to it. You get used to it. Yeah, and I'm used to the cold because I used to live in Maine, up not too far from where you live. So I, I'm sort of a cold-weather person who's been transplanted. Uh, yes, on, I've on actually uh, shopped in in the uh, probably in the same store as you did when you lived in Maine. I had that conversation uh, in the RSC last week uh, with your better half, and I I was shocked that uh, anyone else knows Prescott. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know Prescott intimately because I lived there for about seven years. So, well, enough about the Netherlands of Maine. Let's, uh, we actually do have a pretty lengthy show tonight, but the fact of the matter is that Pete and I are not really going to participate much in the show tonight because we have a pre-recorded interview to play, but don't go anywhere because this is a really, really cool interview. 
Uh, that'll be coming up in the main section, and that'll pretty much be the focus of our show tonight. I'll talk a little bit more about that after we go through some announcements. So let me hit up the first one here, and that is that due to an amazing donation by the guys from Sierra Radio Systems, we have reached our goal for the Hamvention Fund 2013, which means... Yes, that's right. Yay! That means that I will be at Dayton. Um, The booth has been rented. We're in the same booth as the last couple of years, North Hall 131. Uh, So if you remember where we were the last couple of years, that's exactly where we'll be again. Not sure what else to say, really, except thank you, everyone, who donated. If I'm not mistaken, there were a couple of folks, one who offered burgers and one who offered adult beverages. Uh, So I hope those people come forward again and uh, make good on their promises. Uh, It sounds good to me. Adult beverages. Yes. (laughs) That just sounds weird. (laughs) Why? What do you call them up there? Well, we just call it booze or alcohol. Adult beverages sounds like there's nudity involved. (laughs) No, I can guarantee that there will be no nudity involved. Maybe Uh, after the beverages. No, even after the beverages, I can guarantee (laughs) no nudity whatsoever. So anyway, I don't even remember who those people are, but I hope they remember who they are so that I get some free burgers and adult beverages. Uh, Uh, There you go. I I wish that on you, too. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Uh, Anyway, Pete won't be able to make it. Of course, Richard won't be able to make it either. It's going to be me alone, although I understand that Joel, uh, W3RAZ, from the Woof Hong podcast and also from the Linux Link Tech Show, will be sort of in and out to help me during uh, the show while he's there, so you'll be able to hang out and meet him as well. Well, Very cool. Yeah, it should be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great time, and I'm looking forward to see everybody who makes it out to Dayton this year. I believe last year they had over 50,000 people show up, and uh, I'm really hoping it comes out again like that this year and I get to meet everybody who comes by. Excellent. I, uh, I've already been checking the dates for next year. I, I actually checked the dates for this year. I'm like, well, maybe I could make it if this, that, and the other thing. And then I looked at the calendar and realized, no, me and the better half are uh, taking off that weekend. And that would be frowned upon if I didn't show up. So, but next, uh, next year, now I have a, a good excuse to get myself out there. So I'm, I'm, uh, making a promise that I'm going to work really hard to get there next year. Okay, and if you need me to get Cheryl to work on your wife, you know, and tell her all the good things that happened out in Dayton and whatever needs to, you know, sell her on the idea of you being gone for a couple of days, you know, whatever it takes, just let me know. We'll make sure it happens. Oh, she'll be more than happy to get rid of me for a couple of days as long as I haven't promised to do anything with her first. So that's not a problem there. I'm, (laughs) I'm very fortunate that way. All right, excellent. Well, that's it for the Dayton Hamvention. I think we can probably stop talking about it now. It's in about a month. I assume that most people who are going to be there already have because every hotel for about 30 square miles has been sold out. So if you uh, haven't made your plans to be in Dayton yet, uh, you're either going to be doing it like a hobo or you're just not going to be there. Maybe somebody will in their RV. So that's what I'm going to do next year. I'm going to go in my RV so I'll have a place to sleep. Oh, good. Can I sleep with you then? <laughs> well, not with me. Not with you. Yeah, yeah. No, even, <laughs> even if it's on the luggage rack, that's fine. It's still cheaper than a hotel. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and gas is so uh, inexpensive uh, on your side of the border that I'm more than happy to travel uh, there when I can. Excellent. Well, we'll work that out in the next oh, 13 months. Anyway, yeah, we got time. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of time here. My next little piece of information I just got in an email about a half hour before the show, and that is that Bill, 
who is a lucky guy because he found a job and is now gainfully employed making money again and his life is getting better every day but unfortunately that's taking him away from being a member of the Linux and the Hamshack team. So he is going to be going on hiatus and our show notes taker and resident keeper of all knowledge is going to be absent for a while. It's like the uh, proverbial rats uh, leaving the sinking ship. I, I hope the, the ship's not sinking though. I don't think I the ship is sinking. scaring them away. No, I mean, I've actually heard uh, some specific comments that say people really like your uh, coming on board actually. Oh, thank you, nice people. I paid those people to say that, so you'd keep me. You did? So, and, and they turned around and they gave you that money so you could go to the Hamvention. Oh, man, and I thought it was all legit, too. <laughs> Come on, this is Canada. <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> well, it sounds bad. I'm not sure uh, I'm ever going to Canada again. Oh, it's safe. We're nice here. It's just the. It's like anywhere else, right? There's the shady things that happen in shady places. You just got to avoid those places. Okay. All right. Well, you live there, so you'll be able to point them out to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to anymore. It's a long time ago, Russ. All right. Well, anyway, that leaves a hole in our staff. So if anybody has enough time, it doesn't really take that long. But if you'd be interested in uh, being able to take over for Bill, come on to the show maybe every so often in the chat room while we record and sort of look things up on Wikipedia when we forget what we're talking about and compile the show notes for us, we would certainly be appreciative of the help. And of course you'll wind up as a contributor on the website and, uh, you will turn our, or you will earn our eternal satisfaction, not a satisfaction, our eternal gratitude you, you and respect will be, and respect. That's right. You already have yes. our respect because you're a listener of the show, but you'll have greater respect. Uh, not non-listeners are welcome to apply as well. Well, that would make it hard to be a show <laughs> notes taker. But. Well, no, they'll become listeners after the fact. So, uh. well, that's true. I mean, I, as long as I don't have to incorporate some sort of training process, you know, that's fine. That being said, the the Etherpad is is quite uh, like I was saying last week is a great tool and it's quite complete. So the the job kind of does itself for anybody who may want to come aboard. You're you're kind of just compiling and adding this stuff that's mostly already there. So it's it's not a big deal. Right. It's just looking up a few terms, maybe uh, doing some SEO work, scanning Wikipedia to find a link or two or something like that. Uh, everything else is pretty much already in the etherpad and all the notes are already done. You just have to compile them into a form that, uh, people who aren't us can actually read. <laughs> Can't come up with anything on, on that one. I, I don't know. Carry on. Okay. Well here, I don't actually have to carry on because the next bullet point on our etherpad is yours. So it's why don't mine. you go ahead and talk about it? Yeah. I found this, uh, quite by accident. I was actually looking up, um, Linux events that might be happening in Canada because uh, we always talk on, on this show, you guys always talk about the upcoming uh, various uh, Linux Fests, uh, Ohio Linux Fest, uh, RARs, etc. So I thought, I'm going to see if there's anything uh, in and around uh, the country here. And unfortunately, I didn't find anything. Um, there have been some in the past. Calgary had one in 2006. Uh, Toronto had some events between 2007 and 2009. But that's where the uh, that's where the trail goes cold, as it were. 
Um, but this uh, website that I found, uh, it's answers.oreilly.com, uh, has a listing of a whole bunch of Linux uh, events that are uh, coming up. And it's actually uh, called the uh, List of Known Linux Events uh, or Linux Fest Events. So I'm guessing that if this gentleman gets information, he posts it. And if he doesn't know, he doesn't know. But it actually seemed to be quite complete. I don't know if you had a chance to go on there, Russ, and check it out. Um, because not being uh, in the U.S. Linux community, I'm not sure how complete this is. Uh, but it seemed actually pretty complete to me. Uh, Back to you. Back to me. Are we on the radio now? Uh, Roger? Roger over? Over Roger? That was my uh, not-so-smooth segue. (laughs) I'm so used to being on the radio that I I realized it as I was coming out. It's like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, I did look at it, and it does look fairly complete. I I don't remember if it actually had the stuff that's already happened, like scale and stuff like that on it, but I think... Um, it definitely had every Linux fest in the U.S. that I'm familiar with, certainly the bigger ones. Uh, I believe there were a couple of comments at the bottom of the page by people who said, well, you missed this one that had like 35 attendees last year, but, you know, that kind of thing I think we can overlook. Um, but it had all the ones I'm familiar with. I'm pretty sure it had scale. It had Indiana, Ohio, Southeast, Northwest, Northeast, POSCON, FSOSSCON, and I think there were several others actually that I'm not really looking, you know, see, I'm not actually looking at the page and I think I remembered all of those correctly. Um, yeah, that's good. So, uh, yeah, it's a good page. That one will be in the show notes, uh, whether I'm doing them or some helpful volunteer is doing them, they will be there. And, uh, if you're looking for a U.S. Linux fest, it's a good place to go. Another good place to go is the Linux in the Hamshack website because with our ambassador program, I post every Linux fest and every ham fest of any real size that happens during the year on our site as well. So if we happen to have anyone who's going to those who wants to volunteer to promote us, uh, they have a place to go and look up that information. So we are a good resource as well. Yeah, very good. Sorry, I was, I was muted again. I got to stop that. <laughs> Two mice going. I'm just like, I got to get the hang of this. But yeah, it's a, it's a good, uh, it's a really good site. I was actually quite impressed. I've bookmarked it and I'm going to keep that one and uh, check it out uh, on a regular basis. Uh, it has a bunch of events that I've never even heard of. Uh, like you said, all the ones, you know, from January scale, flourish, Nelf, uh, and, and a whole bunch of penguin con, which I like the name of that one in April coming up uh yeah that one's in but, michigan uh, right pardon me PenguinCon. that one's in michigan right if i remember correctly it doesn't say i'd have to click on the link but uh you're most likely correct i'll take your word for it oh uh, and there's texas linux pontiac Best. michigan penguin con 2013 april 26th to 28th it's coming up right and don't forget uh texas linux fest coming up in austin so I won't make that one, unfortunately. Yeah, I probably won't make that one either. I will make this quick announcement. There is um, the Ores Fest, which is a ham fest in the Ozark area, which is in Aurora, Missouri. It's actually coming up this weekend. It's only on Saturday. And I thought about actually going to be there this Saturday. It's from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, this episode most likely will not actually be out before that happens, but I'll put it on the website and all that good stuff, so... I may actually be out at Ors Fest this weekend. So is that pretty close to where you are? Uh, it's very close. It's about eight, well, ten miles, give or take. I thought you were going to say eight hours. No, ten miles is good. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think we should probably move along because the interview that we've got coming up is, well, I'm not even going to tell you what it is. Just know that 
It's very sciencey, aerospacey, and space weathery. Gets a little bit technical, a little bit down and dirty. It's a lot about Linux and a lot about ham radio, a lot about science, and it's a lot of fun. I had a great our uh, interviewee earlier this week, and that will be pretty much the rest of the show. Unfortunately, Pete wasn't able to be with me, so it's just me doing the interviewing. But Pete I know, does. And I'm, I'm I'm envious because that's a big one. It's a it's a great one. Right. Well, I I think I covered all of the uh, important information during the intro to that. So I'll let you have the introduction to the music because you actually discovered the music for this week. So uh, why don't you go ahead and talk about who we're about to play? Yeah, I was. Uh, I'd like to thank Russ for uh, for agreeing to feature this band. I was actually out last week and I went to see some friends uh, from uh, Vancouver who play in a band called Mindle Beach Markets. Um, and while I was listening to them, the opening act uh, for my buddy's band uh, is called Bright September, and it's uh, a group of uh, of uh, six people uh, who are very, very talented musicians. I got to see them uh, live, like I said. Uh, their music is uh, free and open source. Uh, we'll give you the link after. You could just uh, look them up. Uh, they're called Bright September. You can Google them. I, I actually didn't write down the website, so I'm going to have to look it up while we're playing the music. But uh, uh, they are uh, more than uh, excited to be on the podcast. I uh, met the lead singer and uh, asked her her permission. So we got uh, permission right from the band. Uh, and they said that they loved podcasts. They were very excited to be featured tonight. So uh, the first track we're going to feature is called Alive, and it's uh, by Bright September. So we hope you enjoy. Monday 
you know i gotta say i really like that track a lot that's uh bright september with alive yeah it's uh quite melodic um that they were just amazing to see i mean live music is always way better than than any recording of course uh that was uh esther spiegelman on uh vocals and uh, stefan Lorello on uh, guitar they might even be listening to us tonight because i sent them all the info they were very excited so if you guys are here uh thanks for supplying the music and uh perhaps uh, if they're not listening to us live because they're at a show they'll be listening to us on podcast later on so uh good going guys and i've actually uh, favorited them and and uh signed up for their uh newsletter and i'm gonna check them out uh, here and there in montreal again well i wish they'd come around to where we are i'd probably check them out too montreal's a little bit far to go for an indie music show but uh you know maybe someday well you never know they might make it down uh, who knows all right well now this is the fun part for us because pete and i get to sit back and relax and listen to this interview that i've already done so uh, I get to listen to it for the first time too, which is cool. That's right. So this this is a really really good interview. The guest actually kind of stole the show, and I really didn't do a whole lot of anything except let him talk, and I got totally filled up with information. So I'm just going to let this thing run, and uh, we're all going to learn some stuff. We have someone who is probably known to hams across the world for his work on. Uh, electromagnetic propagation space weather atmospheric conditions propagation reports things along those lines and that gentleman is steve nichols otherwise known to hams as g0kya welcome to the show steve yes good afternoon i'm very uh, very pleased to be on the show well good we are more than pleased to have you here um this is pre-recorded segment, and unfortunately, Pete, my co-host, V2XPL, was not able to be here, and when I told him of this impending interview, he was very excited and very disappointed that he actually had to work. So uh, I'll try not to enjoy it too much just to save him a little bit of uh, the enthusiasm he's not going to feel. Let me first start by asking you uh, sort of what you do in your daily life. Uh, I know you're... Uh, physics you studied physics and you work in the aerospace industry but what is it exactly that you do maybe sort of outside the realm of uh, ham radio okay well um my my day job if there is such a thing it seems to be day and evening most of the time is uh, i'm a journalist and i i work in the aerospace industry but specialize in the high-tech side of the industry such as avionics and uh, satellite communications so um most of the time, I'm, I'm working now on either uh, avionics or in-flight entertainment or, or satellite uh, connectivity and, and the latest developments in those fields. All right. And is, the, is it from that you sort of developed your interest in uh, the atmosphere or vice versa, or is it all kind of one thing? Well, that's a bit of a long story, but it's actually probably um, the other way around. I think the, the interest in amateur radio came um, first which then led perhaps to the um, degree in physics. I then worked as a journalist for um, for some time and, and kind of lent that way. And they all I think it was about 1997, I got a call out of the blue from a, f a friend of mine who ran a publishing company and said, um, looking for somebody to do some work at the Farnborough Air Show. Um, we see we need um, somebody who understands something about radio. Yep. Yeah. OK. We tick that box. And somebody who understands something about electronics. Yep. OK. Tick that one as well. And uh, who may be interested in satellite communications. 
So, yep, yeah, that will do. Um, so he said, can you be there, um, you know, next Wednesday? And uh, that was really the start of it. So I, I worked for Flight International on their Flight Daily News at some of the sort of leading air shows around the world. Um, took me to places like uh, Singapore, um, Paris Air Show, um, Dubai, and Farnborough, obviously, in the UK. And that, that led to other things like NBAA in Orlando and, and um, slowly developed over the years. You just, you just get known for that kind of speciality. So, um, I mean, last year, I think I was in about nine different countries in, in, in 12 months, including the States. I was in the States. Uh, I was in Seattle and uh, I was in uh, Long Beach for some work there. I was also in, um, in Florida for NBAA. Uh, next week, I'm in Hamburg, and I'm due to be in Anaheim, I think, in, in June. Then uh, May, I've got to go to Dubai, Saudi Arabia, and Abu Dhabi. So, it, you know, you get around a bit, but uh, it, it, it just you know, it just went, went like that. I'm probably getting off the track a bit. but um, So, really, I suppose the interest in radio came first, and then that led to the day job. Okay, that's that's fantastic. And uh, as far as wandering far afield, you, you need not worry. That's something we do here on a regular basis. That sort of thing, that sort of day job thing that you have going on doesn't really lend itself to the people who know you from ham radio. That sort of thing comes from, I believe anyway, a podcast that you did and maybe still do about HF propagation uh, and basically your reports about uh, atmosphere conditions and HF propagation. Uh, would that be correct? Yeah. Um, I've been a member of the Radio Society of Great Britain's um, Propagation Studies Committee uh, for about the last eight or nine years now. Um, in fact, I've, uh, since last year, I've been the chairman of the committee. And we're, we're lucky that we've got a number of experts in a number of very, very different fields. So we've got people who specialize in uh, low frequency LF uh, conditions. We've got uh, right the way through um, to microwave. So HF, VHF, UHF, microwave, and even now visible light. A lot of people doing work with lasers and uh, visible light, nanometer waves, as they call it. Um, my speciality, if it is a speciality, is HF propagation. Uh, that is ionospheric propagation that's really controlled by the sun. Um, and I started to do a podcast about four years ago to just try and break down some of the barriers to this and, and to try and introduce it to people who were perhaps not familiar with some of the terminology that's used. I know when I was first licensed, I, I was always trying to work out, well, how, how do the, all these things interact? And the more you dig into it, the more you find it's actually, it is quite complex. Um, you can ex explain the basics relatively simply, but it gets very, very complex very, very quickly. So the idea of the podcast really was um, to try and explain some of the, the terms. I haven't actually done it for a few months now. I really ought to... Um, reintroduce it again you, the trouble with podcasts and if you find that you don't get an awful lot of feedback from it until you stop and then people start saying um well, why have you stopped it where's it gone um, but while you're doing it you don't actually get that much feedback i mean that that has led as well to um a number of features i did a whole series we did a year-long set of features in the uk for the radio society of great britain on on hf propagation which ultimately we we put into a book. Myself and Alan Melia, who's the LF specialist on the committee, we we put it into a free book. So that that free downloadable book is is still available. Um, if you like, I'll give you the the URL where anybody can go and get their hands on it. But we thought it was the the best thing to do was to just put it in the public domain for everybody, um, so they can you know if you know nothing about it, um, uh, HF propagation, then for for nothing at all, free cost, you know, you can download the book. Well, I definitely think you should let us know where to get that, because if no one else wants it, I certainly do. 
Okay, well, it's very, very simple. It's uh, www. Sorry, www. G zero KYA. Dot blogspot. Dot com. So it's G zero KYA. Dot blogspot. Dot com, and I think there's a link on the right hand side, and it's uh, basically an int- introduction to HF propagation. And I think there's probably about 12 different uh, chapters in there, if you like. They're all features that were in the RSGB's RADCOM publication. And it goes through uh, a month, a band a month, really. That's the way we did it. So every month we picked a band that was likely to be um, exciting or interesting for that particular month. And then we looked at all the different factors like sporadic E, um, F layer propagation, D layer absorption all the different factors that auroral propagation as well, all different factors that, that come in and try to work that into every month. So it was, it was quite tricky to pick a band um, for each month that, that would highlight some of the things we wanted to talk about, but did it in the end because, for instance, um, sort of May is the beginning of the sporadic E season, uh, which you'd, you'd notice more on perhaps 10 metres and 6 metres, where December, January were, were the best months to really talk about top band and 80 metre long-distance propagation. So that's the way we did it. And then Al Amelia finished off looking at LF propagation, which is um, which is different in that it, you're really bouncing your signals off the off the D layer, the bottom of the D layer. Um, so he went into, you know, the, the, those signal traits, if you like, down at the 150 to 200 kilohertz range not the megahertz range okay well that actually sort of leads me on to where i where i want to go with this one of the comments we've been getting lately is that we're providing topics that don't necessarily delve into the science and the more technical aspects of the hobby so i figured this would be a good way to sort of introduce a technical topic so we all sort of understand that radio waves for the most part or at least in uh, hf land will propagate through the atmosphere so if you would let me ask you sort of a two-part question and hopefully one will lead into the other the first would be why or why as a person would you be interested in the specifics of hf propagation not just simply knowing that radio waves travel through the atmosphere and then maybe uh, talk a little bit about the basics of the atmosphere itself and how radio waves travel through it yeah, sure. Okay, well, we'll uh, we'll take um, both of those questions first. I think, firstly, why why would you want to know what conditions are likely to be like? I think it's really a case of if you want to to work a specific area of the world um, at a certain time, it helps to understand the physics behind what's going on and whether it's likely to happen or not. Now, th- let's give you a, an example of that. If you were in the U.S. and you wanted to work into Europe, say you wanted to work the U.K., and it was uh, nighttime in the middle of winter, the chances of doing that on 28 megahertz, 21 megahertz, um, 18 megahertz, even maybe 20, uh, sorry, 14 megahertz, 20 meters is, is, was, was pretty slim. Um, why? Because there's no daylight path between you. Therefore, we haven't got the, the uh, F layer illuminator that we need to actually you know, create that path. So in that instance in the middle of the winter in the middle of the night you'll really be looking at the lower frequencies like 80 meters 3.5 um, 3.6 3.7 megs and 40 meters um, 7 megs as well so it's understanding the physics of what you're trying to do and how you're likely to achieve that that helps you decide where to go and when um, turn that on its head if you you know if you look at right now um, because we've got the sun 
virtually overhead at the equator, this is a really good time to work north-south paths. So from North America to South America, Europe down to South Africa, for instance, and some of those sort of diagonal north-south paths as well. So North America um, down to South America, sorry, North America down to Africa, South Africa, and and other diagonal paths like that. So it's it, it's an understanding really of of what's going on before you can then decide whether you're going to be able to work something or not. Um, then I suppose we, we talk about the physics of what's actually going on. And th- this is where it gets very interesting and, and, and complicated all at the same time, which is, of course, we, everything comes from the sun. Everything starts with the sun. That's our, our main driver, if you like, for HF propagation. And when I talk about HF, really, I'm talking about perhaps from top band, 160 metres up to 28 megahertz, 29 megahertz, 10 metres. And obviously from the, the sun, which is really a, a gigantic nuclear fusion reactor if you like and it's outputting visible light all the time infrared and ultraviolet x-rays it's a massive massive ball of of plasma that's outputting all this stuff all the time but what we're really interested in is what is it that ionizes our ionosphere that the very very limits if you like of our of our atmosphere up there at um say 75 to 300 miles high because they're the bits they're the the regions if you like that reflect the radio waves in the hf region that we're, we're talking about and what we, we really are interested in from the sun is the ultraviolet and soft x-ray part of the spectrum because that's what does the ionization um, of our layers if you like in the in the earth's ionosphere and so what was found was that the, the amount of um ionizing radiation is closely linked to the sunspot cycle. The more sunspots we get, the more ionizing radiation. And so there was this link between the two. Now, it's, it's very hard on the Earth's surface to actually measure that ultraviolet because it, it gets absorbed by the ozone layer. But what scientists also found was that if they measured the intensity of the radio emissions from the sun at 10.7 centimeters, there was a close correlation between the number of sunspots, the um, amount of UV light coming out, and that radio frequency. And that's what we call now the solar flux index. So this measure of the solar flux index, which is actually a measure of radio waves really at 10.7 centimetres, gives us a close correlation with how much ultraviolet there is coming out. And it's that ultraviolet that, that generates the, 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 this fantastic um, ionisation in the uh, ionosphere that we need to propagate our signals. So that that's the first thing we need to understand is this 11-year sunspot cycle and the close correlation between sunspots and the amount of ionization we're going to get um, here on Earth. Now, the second point is that really when we talk about the, the layers around the Earth, these ionizing la- or ionized layers, there are a number of distinct regions or layers. We call them layers, but they're really regions. And the lowest one really we call the d layer which is really um, an absorbing layer it's there during the day it's the lowest layer of all and it's really an absorbing layer it's the, it's the layer that absorbs radio waves at um, 1.8 3.5 and to a lesser extent 7 megahertz um, during the day when the sun is out further up from that we get the e layer and the f layer f layer is actually two layers during the the, the daytime and f1 and f2 layer and they're the regions that propagate our HF signals that are across the world, if you like. And so we've got this, this situation where we, we want to have lots and lots of sunspots, if you like, lots and lots of ionizing radiation coming out 
to illuminate that, that F layer or F layers to, to so we can propagate our signals over long, long distances. So that, that's the basic physics of the solar ultraviolet output, if you like. Now we've got another problem, which is that the sun every now and again, it has it's, it's, it's a tortured mess of magnetic field lines, if you like, around these sunspots. And every now and again, these, these field lines get so twisted up that they, they, they let go, if you like. And we get a massive solar flare, uh, which emits X-rays and all sorts of you know, high-energy uh, electromagnetic radiation. Now, these, when they reach the Earth, they really, really illuminate that D layer or D region we talked about earlier and cause lots and lots of um, absorption so we suddenly get the, these effects where whatever we try, you know, all we hear is noise because our signals are being absorbed by this layer. And the other problem you get with, with sunspots where you get solar flares as well is you can get something called a coronal mass ejection, a CME as they're called, which is a massive output of millions of tons of plasma, protons and electrons basically that are thrown off the sun. And these head towards the, the Earth. It's obviously a lot slower than, than the speed of light, but very, very fast, actually. And when these these protons and electrons, this plasma hits the Earth's magnetic field, they get tunneled down or channeled down towards the poles. And this is how we get aurora. But unfortunately, this this also depletes the F layer um, or F layers as well. So when we get these CME events, we sometimes get auroral conditions. But on the whole, um, it, it wrecks the uh, HF propagation that we look forward to. So ideally, we want high number of sunspots but a low um, level of cmes and solar flares and we we can really measure all this very very simply with just a, a few simple numbers and the first is really as i said the solar flux index which is a measure of how much of this ultraviolet ionizing radiation there is and at the moment i'm looking at it's now 119 is the solar flux index for today which is it's not bad it's not fantastic um, anything over 100 is 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 pretty good really and will give you propagation perhaps on the higher bands, like 21 megahertz and above. And then we have these other two numbers, the A index and the K index, which are a measure of this plasma, if you like, that's hitting the Earth's magnetic field. And people get confused about this, but they're both measures of the same thing, really. They're a measure of the, the way that the Earth's magnetic field is being perturbed by this plasma coming in. But the K index is a, a logarithmic measure of one to, I think it's five or six, um, and it's a three hour. It's updated every three hours. Um, so that gives you an immediate measure of, of how much of this um, stuff is actually hitting the Earth's magnetic field. The A index is a 24 hour average and that goes up to much higher numbers. So at the moment, we've got a, an A index of six, which shows us we're, we're, it's pretty settled over the last 24 hours. We have a K index of one. So the last three hours, again, pretty settled. So just by looking at those three numbers, solar flux index 119. A index 6 k1 that tells me that we've got pretty settled conditions and a pretty good solar flux index so that that probably tells me that we've probably got good conditions on 20 meters 14 megahertz maybe up to um, 17 meters maybe even 15 meters would be would be quite good during the day anyway so once you get a handle for some of these numbers then you can start to work out how conditions are well, that's that's a lot of information that I didn't actually know. So now, now I feel like I'm actually learning and expanding my mind. So I feel good about that. In general, if you were to if you were to take the um, the SFI, the A, and the K, like at a glance, what would you consider uh, extremely poor HF propagation con uh, conditions just by looking at those numbers? 
Right. Okay. Well, that that's quite simple. Um, poor conditions would either be a very low solar flux index around the, the, the 60, 65 mark, which we had for years, actually. When we had solar minimum, every time I did the podcast, the numbers were always around about the the 65-ish area. And, and that's usually an indication that the higher HF bands are not going to play ball. And we had years and years where only 20 meters ever opened up. Um, sometimes you've got something on 17, but 15, 12, 10 meters were just not going to play ball whatsoever. So that was the first indication that things are not that good. At the moment, because we're in, we are roughly at sunspot maximum, believe it or not, um, then poor conditions would be usually indicated by a high K index up at K index of four or five or an A index in the sort of um, 40, 30, 40, 50 kind of region. And they're, they're going to be conditions that show us we've got an aurora um, in progress. Uh, or if you listen to the bands, you'll find that the upper the bands will be will be closed down. We've got a depleted F layer, lots and lots of absorption going on. And, uh, you know, generally the, the, the bands would be pretty, pretty poor. But the flip side of that, I suppose, if you look at what are the best conditions ever is a high solar flux index, preferably over maybe 150 and a low A and K index, K maybe one uh, and an A index in single figures. There's always always a solar wind of some description coming out from the sun that's impacting the earth. Um, but it's, you know, as conditions today are not bad at all. And the solar wind speed is is relatively low. I mean, when it when it really gets going and they talk about windy outer space and and it is because the solar wind, this 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 solar, this particle output from the sun that's hitting us all the time. But when it really gets going, it's, you know, it's 600 kilometers a second, um, 500, 600 kilometers a second. And millions of tons of this matter you know impact in the earth's magnetic field which is you know why it, it distorts magnetometers it distorts you know needles compass needles almost you know when it's that bad so again so high solar flux and we've not really seen it this solar cycle that's the trouble i think the the peak of the last solar cycle solar cycle 23 probably about 11 years ago we had it, it was over 200 and this year, I think, or this this solar cycle, I think we've seen highs of 150, maybe 160, but they've been very, very short lived, and it's it's vanished back down to the 110, 120 kind of mark again. I always say that anything above 100 is, you know, a sign that maybe 10 meters will open up occasionally, and not on a daily basis. You really need it much higher than that. Um, to give you um, an indication, um, when 9/11 happened which was 2001, I believe. Um, the solar flux index went on at 9-11 was, was over 200. It was something like about 210, I think, 212. And it was very possible to hear the 10-meter American repeaters in the UK every day, regular as clockwork, from about midday onwards, you would start hearing them come in. You would start hearing the ones coming in from the Caribbean, um, W10J in Boston, which is no longer with us, KQ2H, I think it is, in New York. And they were there every day. You know, it got to the stage it was so boring. And they were always very, very strong. Where right now, you know, with a flux of 119, that they, you know, you're not going to hear them as regularly as that. And it's just a shame we're not getting these fantastic HF conditions on 10 meters that, uh, you know, perhaps we had last solar cycle. One thing I appear to be picking up from what you're saying about this, the solar flux index, is a lot of the the bands that you're talking about hover in the 20 meter band and upwards so what is 
what is the difference, I guess, in propagation wise from the 20 meters and up and, uh, you know, the, the SFI and solar interaction with those frequencies as opposed to the ones lower, like 40 and 80 meters? Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's start with 40 and 80 to start with. 40 and 80, on the whole, they get absorbed by the D region. So that the higher the solar flux, the more that D region, this lowest region, about 50 miles, is going to get um, ionized, and that's going to absorb signals. Definitely in 80 meters, definitely 3.5 megs gets absorbed during the day, and to a lesser extent, 40 meters gets absorbed, which is why at this point in the solar cycle, 80 meters during the day is not very good. Um, at solar minimum, you could work around you know, your locality on 80 meters without any great big problem at all. Um, but now you're finding that due to this absorption, 80 is probably quite noisy during the day, not very good. Uh, but 40 meters is better because we're talking about that absorption in this D region. But if you can get your signals through that to the E and the F layer, then we need the, the higher solar flux uh, figures to illuminate those regions so that we can actually propagate our signals from them. Now, as we that go up the electromagnetic spectrum, if you like, towards 20 meters, um, 17 meters, 15 meters. Your signals, when they um, go up and out, if you like, if, if there isn't sufficient ionization there to return them back to the Earth, the signals will just keep on going into space. You know, they will go in a straight line. They'll be refracted a little bit, but they won't be refracted enough to come back down to Earth. So we need that extra ionization in that F layer, F1 layer, F2 layer during the day or F layer at night to return the signals back to the Earth. So the more ionization we get, the higher the frequency you can use and the signals will still be returned back to, to back to the Earth, which is why, again, when the sun sets and the, those F1, F2 layers, which then combine to become a single F layer really at, at night, not being illuminated anymore, the ionization starts to die off. There's we're getting recombination of the of the positive and negative ions and then you find that the signals won't bounce off those regions or won't be refracted by those regions again, which is why the first band to close down is 10 metres. And then as the uh, sun has set and the, you know, the, 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 the time goes on, you, you lose 10, first of all, then you lose 12, 15. And then what normally happens is that, especially in the summer, actually, summer nighttime, there's still enough ionisation left for 20 metres to be open 24 hours a day uh, in the summer. And in the winter, you probably find that 20 metres after dark will also close down unless it's been a hell of a lot of ionisation and the recombination rate is is lower um, and therefore you find that 20 metres will stay open longer. So the other factor you have to bring into this, um, which is, is not always terribly well understood, is that the atmospheric chemistry or the ionospheric chemistry changes in the winter and the summer. Um, and we get this, this strange effect, um, and a winter anomaly, if you like, where um, in the winter, the recombination rate is slower and it's easier to ionize, which is why conditions are better in the winter, even though you think, well, the sun's lower. Why, why is it better in the winter? And in the summer, um, it's a different type of um, chemistry. There's a, a difference in the balance between the, the different ions. I think it's a difference between the oxygen and the nitrogen um, atoms or molecules, actually. It's a molecular distribution. And so it's it's harder. The recombination rate is faster and it's harder to ionize in the summer. So even the, the, the swap between winter and summer has an effect on on propagation as well. 
don't know if that really answers your question, but we need more ionization to make these higher frequencies return back to Earth. That's what it really amounts to. No, actually, I think you did answer the question and probably a few I didn't ask, but that's okay. One thing I would like to kind of go into now is you've talked um, rather extensively about two of the, the layers of the atmosphere, the D layer and the F1 and F2 layers. Uh, you haven't really talked that much about the E layer. So what's uh, special or or maybe not special about the E layer that you haven't talked to us about it up till this point? Well, the E layer is is one of those odd ones that people think that it disappears at night, and it 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 doesn't really disappear for starters. It it becomes much less um, prevalent um, than it does during the day, but there is still some residual E layer um, ionization at night. Not a lot, but there is some there as well. So some signals get refracted from the E layer. Um, predominantly down the bottom end of the band um, or the bottom end of the spectrum. So top band and 80 meters, we get some reflection from the E layer um, rather than the, the F1 and F2 layer. Now, the only thing is, is because it's a lower layer, the hop distance or the skip distance, if you like, is going to be a lot shorter than if we're talking about the F layer. So E layer propagation tends to be shorter range than F layer propagation. That's the first factor we have to think about. Also, we need to have enough ionization to support it. But I think the the one thing about E-layer propagation that people may have heard about is sporadic E, which is this effect that we get um, in the northern hemisphere, at least. We we see it beginning in May, um, also in May, sort of June, July time. And also there's a, a period of sporadic E or just after Christmas in sort of late December, January as well. And this is something that um, propagates signals up to 10 meters, 28 megs, uh, 6 meters, 50 megs, and even up to uh, 2 meters, 145 megahertz as well. And it's also something that's not terribly well understood. We can describe the effects of sporadic E quite well in that we know when it occurs. We can we can say pretty much hand on heart in the Northern Hemisphere that we're going to see sporadic E um, May, June, July, and then it tails off towards August and also a short period near Christmas sort of in New Year. And we know what it is. We, we say it's, it's intense, um, patchy ionization that um, is very, very um, short-lived and, and it moves rapidly. But it gives us very, very strong signals over distances of about 1,000, 1,500 miles. So we, we're very, very good at saying what sporadic E is. What we're not 100% sure about is what actually causes it. And there's a number of theories about sporadic e there, there's been theories in the past that it was linked to thunderstorms and ionization due to thunderstorms the current th- positive theory that um, seems to be gaining some ground is that sporadic e is caused by um, wind shear in the upper atmosphere uh, where you have two winds going in different directions if you like and that um, movement of ions from um, due to this wind going in different directions, compresses these ions into to clouds or patches that gives us the, the effects we want. Now, OK, that's fine. But where do these ions come from? And one of the theories is that these ions are coming from meteor material, uh, meteor debris that, that is constantly hitting the Earth all the time. Um, but there's certain conditions when um, in these particular t- you know, times or periods that we get the, these effects. And there's a lot of research in this this area. And it, it's not the trouble is it's not the answer to all sporadic e events um but it, it's is gaining a lot of ground 
but so we can predict when spradigy occurs we can also got some theories as to where it's going to occur there's a lot of thought that it occurs near um, mountain ranges and mountain ridges uh, i have a, a good friend um uh, jim bacon g3 yla in the uk who's a, he's a meteorologist by profession and he he feels now he can actually um, predict where sporadic e may occur by looking at where there are mountains like the, the, the swiss alps or mountains in norway and looking at wind directions and working out where you get these gravity wave effects that may be compressing this ionization and the same can be applied to the us and canada as well so that's that's really the exciting thing about um, the e layer is that we get these fantastic sporadic e openings for instance there are many occasions in the uk when we can hear foreign broadcast stations on the vhf bands when you're listening one minute you're listening to your local radio station next minute just up the band up just up the dial a little bit you'll suddenly find there are spanish stations coming through very very strong but not not for long maybe five or ten minutes and they'll vanish again because these clouds of ionization move very very quickly around um the, the, the countryside so one minute you've got spotlight propagation to some parts of the uh, or some state or some part of the, the country and then it will move and it'll, that will disappear and another part will come in so it's, it's exciting and it, it's very hard to predict but we know as i said when it's going to happen in terms of what months we know what bands it affects but in terms of the, the full physics behind what's going on we're not too sure well, that's very interesting information about uh, sporadic E. I've heard the term numerous times and really didn't know anything about it, just that people seem to like to chase it, uh, particularly on six meters. And I was wondering if you wouldn't uh, mind maybe speculating on what it is about six meters that attracts so many people. I realize it's it's sort of in between HF and VHF. Um, I think they technically call it VHF. Um, maybe it's sort of in that no man's land. And because of that, uh, it's an interesting band to use and to work. And is there, would you like to speculate perhaps on uh, why six meters is so interesting to the amateur radio enthusiasts? Yeah, I think there's, I think six meters has a massive following. Um, I think for a number of reasons. I think if you just, if you're a casual, um, um, listener of six meters you probably think it's just white noise and i must admit i'm not the world's biggest six meter fan but it, it's got a lot of um, characteristics that make it um, a fun band and one that that you never know what you're going to get i think the first thing to say about six meters is that it opens up to um, f2 layer propagation um, long distance f2 layer propagation when we've got high solar flux numbers so when we've had numbers in the, the, the 160, 180, 200 mark, then two meters, uh, sorry, six meters will open up to long distance propagation. And because the higher the frequency, the less the absorption you get, what you find is that six meters, you know, 50 megahertz suffers very little absorption. So when you do get an opening on six meters, things, you know, really crack on and they're, they're very, very loud. It's, it's like t 10 meters on steroids, really. So that's the first reason that people are interested in six is that when we've got high solar flux numbers, it, it can really open up to worldwide propagation. I think the other thing is that the antennas are relatively small. Obviously, a Yagi is going to be about three meters across, uh, where a 10 meter antenna would be um, five meters across. So they're an awful lot smaller. So you can you can get more gain at six meters uh, than you can from a 10 meter antenna for the for, you know for much smaller size. So that's the first interest. Then you've got other factors with six meters there are times it will open up to to paths 
with much lower solar flux numbers. But the, the whole business of HF propagation predictions is really a, a, a business of probability. We estimate the probability of having a path open on a certain um, band at a certain time of day. But we can never say for 100% certain that, yes, that path will definitely open or not be open. And I think with six metres, people like it because now and again, you will get these spotlight type paths that occur um, with, with lower solar flux numbers. But they're going to be quite rare um, and when they do open up they'll probably be quite short-lived but it's the kind of path that will you know will open up and give you good contacts for instance last solar maximum um, there was a station in canada who could work anybody in the uk on six meters and, and he did um, i worked him uh, many many times i'd have to check my log to get his call sign but you know he he was able to work people in into the uk who are only only running two element um but uh, yagis so that's the first thing that you can get tremendous distances i've got a friend who got his dxcc solely using six meters and that that's that go that's going some but he did it at the last sunspot maximum when you could work the world all of a sudden you know the band will be dead one minute next thing it opens up to the caribbean um then that will close down another part of the world will open up um and and it it was it was like that and some of these really long distance paths like uk to australia yes they would open up not every day obviously but they would open up and you could work the you know work the world with 10 watts on six meters so that's what people like about it um obviously it's very prone to sporadic e as well um and and again we get multi-hop sporadic e so it's quite possible in the summer to work if you've got a decent antenna to be able to work into the united states from great britain and europe via multi-hop sporadic E, so signals are bouncing off sporadic E clouds and off the Atlantic Ocean. So again, you can work multi-hop sporadic E on six meters and, and, and get around the world. So that's another propagation mode that people like. You've got aurora, um, six meters um, auroral propagation is another uh, fascinating element of, of the game. And you've got um, tropospheric propagation on six meters as well, maybe not as prevalent as two. But it's there. So I think the, the interesting thing about six meters is an awful lot of different propagation modes. And I haven't even touched on some of them. Um, there's there is a, a mode of propagation on six meters, which is trans equatorial um, as well. TEP propagation where you can work across the equator to sort of different um, sort of similar latitudes to you. That was something that was discovered in the I think it was 1950s and 60s. So, um, there's a rural E as well. There's also another form of propagation that uh, will give you openings across to Japan from the UK. I'm desperately trying to remember what it's called. But there is so many different facets of, of propagation on six that, that makes it interesting. But to a casual observer of six, they will just they will just go onto six meters and think, well, it's just white noise. There's nothing there. So if you're a real aficionado, aficionado of six meters you'll know when to look and when but you've, you've got to be prepared to work these very short-lived propagation modes that uh, you know pop out of the noise really on, on the band and that's why they call it the magic band i think wow fantastic i i'd be willing to bet that we have created at least one or two six meter enthusiasts who haven't even tried it yet but are now going to just because of that description I would like to jump back to the solar cycle a little bit. We, you talked uh, briefly about the 11-year solar cycle and uh, the solar maximum and the solar minimum. And if I remember correctly, we're sort of uh, on the upswing towards the solar maximum right now. 
even though there's a, an 11 year cycle in the solar cycle, the cycle itself is also cyclical because sometimes it will be a very strong 11 year cycle and sometimes a very weak one. And I kind of understand that we're sort of in a weak one right now, even though we're coming up towards a solar maximum, if, if we're not already there, we're not going to get the propagation that we did say the last one or the one before that necessarily. Um, am I, am I getting close here? Yeah, you, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. The solar cycle averages out about, about 11 years, um, from a maximum, uh, to maximum. But it's an average. Sometimes they're longer than that. Sometimes they can be shorter. And you're right that the, the quality of, of the solar cycle, if you like, the number of sunspots you're going to get varies dramatically. And we're still really working on the physics behind what causes this. All we can say is that this solar cycle was very, very slow to get off the ground, was very, very slow to get going. Um, and we may have actually passed solar maximum already. We're not totally. The thing about solar maximum is you never really know until maybe a couple of years down the line where it was. And there is a feeling that maybe solar maximum was last year, maybe October, November last year, I believe. Um, there is another train of thought that says that we've had solar maximum in the northern hemisphere of the sun, but that the southern hemisphere of the sun is lagging behind. And there's a lot of thought, whether this is wishful thinking, I don't know. There's a lot of thought that we may see um, a little bit more of an upswing um, with the uh, southern hemisphere of the sun and more solar activity there. Most of the solar activity that we've had um, recently, if you like, seems to have been the northern hemisphere. And the southern hemisphere of the sun has not really been um, playing ball. Um, as I said, we, we don't really know. Um, scientists at um, NOAA and NASA and other um, institutions around the world all make predictions in terms of what's going on and where we are. But I think in general, they agree now that this, I think everyone agrees that this is, was a, a cycle that was very slow to start, um, has not performed as well as perhaps we would like, and that the maximum solar flux has not been anywhere near as good as the last cycle. Um, whether it now improves, I think what we will see is we will see maybe one or two um, upswings um, into the maybe the 150, 160 mark, but they might be quite short-lived. Um, um, and I think that in terms of using the smooth sunspot numbers, which is what we should be using for programs like VOACAP, and we, we can talk about that shortly, um, the smooth sunspot numbers that, that they will max out um, in the middle of this year. So it, it's, a, yeah, it's a little bit of a shame. And we, we have, I think the thing to say is if you get good conditions, you know, work them. Last October, things were, were cracking on. Um, we had a flux up in the 150, 160 mark and 10 meters was open every day and, you know, get on and work the bands as, as, as much as you possibly can. Um, I think at solar minimum, there's no reason why you should get dejected about, um, conditions. You just have to act accordingly, really. I mean, when we had solar minimum, it was very, very good time to do DXing on 80 meters and 40 meters to a lesser extent. And also 20 meters was was still capable of, you know, giving us some very, very good DX. But what you don't see is those those wild openings at uh, 15, 12 and 10 meters and definitely not on six meters as well, um, which is a big, big shame. What the next solar cycle will bring, we don't know. There's a there is a indication, if you like, there's a suggestion that it's going to be even quieter, um, you know, yet another uh, bad solar cycle but we won't really know for about 11 years i suppose 
Um, and don't even get me started on whether the, the solar cycle is linked to climate change as well, because there is there is some feeling now that um, um, that, 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 that the sunspot number also affects climate. But I don't want to even go there. <laughs> that might depth be honest. And, and it's a it's a bit of a, a question mark over that one. Well, I will leave the controversial political discussion for maybe next time if there is a next time. How's that? Yeah, absolutely fine. I think one point I would like to make is we've talked a lot about um, propagation. We've talked about some of the mechanisms behind it. And there is a, a, a pretty easy way of finding out what conditions might be like between you and another part of the world for any particular day, any particular hour, any particular month. And that's to use a, um, something called VOACAP, which was a, a Voice of America uh, based program. Now, VOACAP, I know this is a, I think a Linux program, but you don't have to um, run a program now to actually get access to VOACAP. You can do it online. If you go to VOACAP, V-O-A-C-A-P.com, VOACAP.com, you can actually run predictions there online now, um, which is very, very, help, very helpful. And you can do it in two ways. You can either say, well, I'm here and these are, you know, this is what month it is and it will show you what parts of the world are likely to be open um, from your QTH. Or you can do a point-to-point -point prediction and say, right, I want to work into the UK from wherever you are, Arkansas, whatever. What band is the best band to be on at what time? And so you can run VOACAP um, online, as I said, as a, as a web application at VOACAP.com. There is a Linux version as well that you can download. I'm not very familiar with that one. There are an awful lot of programs available for the PC, PC-based programs, but this is the easiest way to get access um, to, to a Linux version, which is either the Linux version of VOACAP or use the VOACAP online one. I think that's the point I'd like to make, that you know, rather than guessing what's the best band to work where and when, you know, go online and actually have a look. Now, you said earlier that the idea of the the HF propagation is a sort of predictive model. You don't really you don't really know. You're you're kind of making educated guesses about where the propagation is likely to be at a certain time on a certain frequency between two points. Um, so, what when you run these VOACAP applications? And I did this earlier, so I I know the answer to this already. But when you when you do that, what exactly are you going to see? What's it going to show you? Let's let's assume you're just going to do the thing where you say, "I'm here. My antenna is this kind. It's this high. I'm going to operate on this band." Where is my propagation going to be? So when you when you actually see that, what does it show you? Okay, okay. Well, if you run a, a VOACAP area prediction, it will show you a map of the world, a Mercator map of the world, and it will show you hot spots around the world with a, a color scheme, if you like, ranging from cold, cold blue right up to red hot. Um, uh, well, obviously red. And, and the color scheme is an indication. There's a scale next to that, which is an indication of the probability that you will be able to work that particular part of the world. And the probability runs from the coldest blue, which is 0%, you don't stand unearthly, through to 100%, you stand a pretty good chance, a very, very good chance, if you like, of being able to work that area. And it, as I said, it's all probability. And the, the trouble with the ionosphere is that people think it's a nice, even layer and nicely even illuminated, and it's not. It's it's a tumultuous, um, you know, mess if you, of ions, if you like, and high-speed winds, very, very high-speed winds, and and it's churning. It's being ionized all the time. It's recombining. And you've got the solar wind um, affecting it as well. So there's a lot of factors um, affecting the ionosphere. So we can never say 100%. Yes, there is definitely going to be a path open from here to there, but all we can say is that on any one day, or well, this particular month, you have a kind of 
70%, 60% probability that you'll be able to make that contact. Um, or another way of looking at it is that on any one day or any one month, you will have, be able to make that contact on 60% of the days in that month. And so on a on a, an area basis, that's the way VOACAP works. It will give you a probability figure of being able to work that um, contact. Um, the other way of doing it is if you say, I want to work from A to B, you give it an actual path. It will give you another um, hotspot uh, graph, if you like, with, again, the, the 0 to 100% probability. And you basically pick the hottest spot. For instance, if you're looking at um, here to the, the United States, the hot spot would probably sub be somewhere around um, mid-afternoon UK time, uh, late morning, perhaps US time on the East Coast. And you'd probably be seeing the hot spot around about the 14 megahertz, 18 megahertz region, maybe up to 21 megahertz. So it will tell you the best band and the best time to work it. And by doing this, if you if you want to play on HF and you want to work a specific area of the of the world, this is the, the probably the best way to do it. Is rather than just go on like and see whether you can hear anything, is actually work out the best time to do it. And if you're trying to work a specific uh, de-expedition. Using these tools will give you a, a far, far better um, gauge of, of the best time and band to do it, I think. All right. Excellent. Now, you did mention your your uh, book, um, which I have since looked at, that uh, talks about, you know, atmospheric conditions and uh, the way things work and HF propagation and stuff like that. Are there any other resources that perhaps you use or that you think might be beneficial for those listening uh, to visit if they want to understand the atmosphere a little better or the sunspot cycle or any of the other things we've talked about? Yeah, there are. Um, on my uh, blogspot page as well, you'll find some other links. If you if you search under propagation on there, there's some other links to a couple of books uh, um, by Bob Brown, the late Bob Brown, uh, who was a professor of ionospheric physics, I, I, I believe. And um, he wrote a, a couple of books. One, I think, was called The Little Pistol's Guide to HF Propagation and The Big Gun's Guide to LF Propagation. And they are, again, free. His family, when he passed away, which was um, within the last two years, I think, his his family were, were generous enough to, to put them into the public domain. And they are godsends in terms of explaining um, some of the, the, the technicalities of HF propagation. Again, it's a sort of information that you would pay a fortune um for to actually buy um and they're they're worth looking at as well and the links for those are on my website or you can search for canine la carl little swab who's um another um, fantastic hf propagation expert in the us uh, i meet carl um quite regularly he comes over to our conventions over here carl's an excellent guy and uh, very very knowledgeable about uh, propagation far more knowledgeable than me and I think he actually hosts those um, books on his website. So if you if you if you can't find them via my site, if you Google K9LA Carl's site, um, they'll be on there as well. So in terms of free resources, they are probably my book, or Alan and my book, um, and then Bob Brown's books are probably the the three free resources you can get your hands on that will give you everything beyond that. You start to look at um, books and there are a few around. Um, but you have to sort of search high and low to find them. Some of them are getting a little bit old now, but I'd, I would start with those free resources, first of all. And if you're still interested in the nature of propagation beyond that, then, um, you know, you can then dig a bit deeper and get some of the, the, the more complex texts that, that are around. Things like Ionospheric Radio by Kenneth Davies. These are universal 
biodiversity text, another one by uh, Hunsucker and Hargreaves, that high latitude ionosphere uh, and its effects on radio propagation. But to be honest, postgrad level books are, are quite heavy and you're probably better off with Bob Brown stuff, which is a lot easier to read and will tell you everything you need to know. Well, I assume that people will uh, judge their own confidence level and dive in as deep as they feel comfortable with. So um, I really want to thank you. I know you're a very busy guy working in the aerospace industry and doing all the things you do. I can't thank you enough for, for being a guest. I know. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm more than happy to uh, to, to come on and uh, talk propagation. It's uh, what I like doing. And, uh, I, you know, we all, we're all learning in this, this field. Um, I, I would never, ever say that I understand stand all of it. And there's always plenty to, to learn and relearn. Um, it, it is complex, but fascinating at the same time. So I'm more than happy to, to try and dispel some of the myths, perhaps, and perhaps lay down some of the foundations of, of what's actually going on above our heads. Way, way above the atmosphere, of course. We, we talk about um, you know, atmospheric, but really it, the, the atmosphere only really affects um, uh, VHF, UHF, microwave uh, propagation. The, the kind of stuff we're doing down at HF and LF is way, way above that, right on the edge of space up there, 50 miles, 150, 300 miles up. So uh, definitely ionospheric rather than atmospheric, if you like. Well, I know I didn't understand a lot of what you talked about until you talked about it, and I believe that knowing more about it is actually, I'm now more interested in how things work, uh, to know some of the mechanics behind it, and uh, I hope everybody else sort of has that same experience. I, I believe they will. So oh, you're uh, welcome. No problem. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to let you go ahead and uh, go back to your family or whatever it is you do in the uh, in the evening. It's uh, a lot later for you than it is for me, and I'm I have to step out and go back to work. But once again, thank you very much, Steve. It was uh, really entertaining, very enlightening, and uh, perhaps we'll get a chance to talk to you again sometime. Yeah, sure, no problem. So it's it's been so long in the in the in, you know in coming, but uh, more than happy to uh, to talk any any time. Uh, feel free. All right, thank you very much. Okay, thanks very much. Cheers, then. Like you're shit. 
had another great track from Bright September, following up an interview from Steve Nichols, G0KYA. And honestly, I believe I can say with sincerity that if you don't want to know everything there is to know about HF propagation through the atmosphere after listening to that talk, there is something wrong with you. Yeah, absolutely. I um, You were talking about his, uh, his book, uh, Understanding LF and HF Propagation. I'd actually downloaded that and printed it probably about three or four years ago. And I'd forgotten about it until just now when I was listening to him talk about it. And I pulled it out and I want to read it. I wanted to do that like three or four years ago. And I'm going to do it now. I'm definitely motivated. He He also has another book you probably know called Stealth Antennas. Uh, which is really good for people who live in apartments and condos and people who have to deal with HOAs, uh, a book put out by RSGB. Um, so a man of many talents. I was looking at his website. I mean, he's into photography, uh, works in uh, the aerospace industry. Uh, he's worked with Sir Richard Bronson. I mean, he's just a fascinating, fascinating guy and, and has been for years. Yeah, he's an amazingly talented and very intelligent guy. He's, he's a very busy person and you know, quite honestly, I'm not even sure why he deigned to give us an interview, but the fact that he did just is fantastic. And I really hope that everyone who listens to this show will really check out all of the things he talked about, all of the resources that he mentioned, and uh, will, if nothing else, just send him a short email and say that they enjoyed his contribution to this show because I can't thank Steve enough for the information and for the time he gave us. It's, uh, it's truly amazing. But unfortunately, we've run really long on this show and that interview was just, uh, was pretty spectacular. And I kind of want to leave it where it was. So I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. I'm going to start the outro music and I'm going to let Pete say whatever he wants to say. I'm going to say my thing and then we're going to get on out of here. So what do you think about that? Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. Well, let me push the button and there you go. All right, uh, nice folks. Thanks for being here tonight. Uh, appreciate uh, you guys. Appreciate your patronage. It's because of you that we have such a great show. Uh, check us out at lhspodcast.info for all the latest information. And uh, send us a note, info at lhspodcast.info if you want to get a hold of us. You'll find me, Pete, the 2 xpl on uh, no social medias. Uh, well, I'm on Facebook. You might find me on there. Uh, then that just drop me a line. I'll be happy to get back to you. Uh, back over to you, Russ, for the final words. All right. This has been Russ and Pete on K5TUX. I'm on all the social networks out there. Twitter, Identica, maybe Diaspora one of these days, Pump.io, Google+, all of those cool things. You can probably find me as J.R. Woodman. If not, I'm probably K5TUX. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the show. This has been episode number 104 of Linux of the Ham Shack. And you know what? We're just going to have a thousand more, whether you think we are or not, we will. So I'm going to say goodbye from the really too hot for April peaks between the pine forests in the rolling hills and swelling lakes and molten pine trees of north central arkansas and i've clearly had way too much scotch for the evening this is k5tux go to lhspodcast.info for all the information you need to know about the show send us a voicemail become an ambassador you know what to do you've been listening forever tell your friends 
be back for episode number 105. We'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. 73. Play with that lizard, you're gonna go blind.